Hi everyone, my name is Karina Givargazov. I'm the founder of Mission Magazine with our tagline for fashion for beauty for good. My mission podcasts are normally hosted by myself and Charlene Spiteri, the singer-songwriter of the band Texas. For those of you that have been following us, um, realise that she's actually been tied up working on a new album. She had a single come out this week, so hopefully she'll be joining us back soon. My next guest is someone I met a while ago when I was a stylist. He was a remarkable photographer who worked non-stop shooting some of the most known and recognisable faces. His biggest professional assignment, though, came when he was asked to take the official photographs of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle for their engagement and their wedding. This person is a Polish nobleman, someone I hope I'm allowed to call a friend. We talk about fashion, giving back, he's ever so philanthropic, and all his incredible charity work. Please tune in to listen to all the lovely things Alexi Lebanowski has to say. Well, I think you did, um, when we first started doing this, 2017, you did a My Mission Is video and we could hear oh, yeah. children in the background. <laughs> they were, they were hanging, on, hanging on to my leg. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you kept looking down like, I have a little human attached to my leg. <laughs> exactly, exactly. How are, you, how are you? I'm I'm good, you know, flowing, going with the punches as everyone else is. But, you know, I was putting kind of we always put questions and thoughts together when we interview someone on the podcast and I mean yours was hard to fit on one page I have to be honest Alex <laughs> <laughs> long and boring <laughs> not boring at all you're just I mean it's so it's going to sound really slushy but I'm so happy to know you and happy to oh, have you thanks, kind of come on this and be part of this because it's really you're genuinely a you know a great caring person that does a lot that does so much and we're going to probably jump around. I mean, whenever Charlene, and, and I apologise, Charlene couldn't be on this. She's actually, she's in the middle of trying to finish her a new album. That's exciting. It's very exciting. But it got pushed, obviously, because of COVID. But they're now just getting back, kind of fine-tuning it all and getting it together for a launch. I believe a new single's coming out in January, I believe. But it's it's brilliant. I heard a little, I've heard a few little bits of it, two tracks a wow. while ago. And, and it's really, really good. And it's Because um, when was the last one? Oh, I don't know. That's a really good question. I wish she was on the call to answer this. Um, <laughs> so hang on. So is it is it usually both of you on the thing? It is. It oh, is. That's funny. Wow. Okay. Cool. All yes. right. I, this is a bit. This is more even. I feel. I feel. Feel safer. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, she's great. We have such a giggle. I am. Um, I mean, the last few ones we've done, I've got a slapped wrist because uh, I made a constant error I kept saying and I'm in England and she would say UK it's the UK <laughs> oh I see because <laughs> she's Scottish so right, right, um, right. I've done that on a few I think I did it with Philip Lim when we uh, but you know and Faye McLeod who's also Scottish I got berated by two of them oh, on that funny. one but um no it's good it's good you know it's um I mean I'm sure with COVID and everything you were just saying your homeschooling I mean what's that been like with and you used to travel so much with work yeah it's been I mean listen I, I I feel very awkward saying this because 2020 has been such a kicker of a year for millions of people mm -hmm. um and you know I've there are days when you wake up and you go what the hell what the fuck am I gonna am I ever gonna work again yes and yes. then other days when you look up and you or even 20 minutes after you think that you look at your kids and you think Thank God I, this this happened because I've been given seven or eight months every day with my children, which may never happen again. 
I mean, I mean, we're definitely screaming every day, but then, <laughs> but then I know I look back on this time and like with rose tinted glasses. <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 a precious time, especially you know when you have children that you're together and you know they're all safe and everything. It's um exactly exactly. No, I, I mean, my gosh, we're gonna go through. I'm gonna go through a lot of stuff with you. I'm just. It's amazing, Alexis. Like, you're, have you seen? You've got a Wikipedia page. I mean, that's just so cool. Have I? Yes. Oh, I and didn't I have, even know that. That's so funny. Wow. Well, I have to say, I think they need to go back in and, and double the size of it because I think <laughs> they've missed out quite a lot of stuff. Are you looking? Are you looking now? <laughs> yeah. Who who makes a Wikipedia page? I mean, is, I don't know. Maybe your agent. Maybe from oh, really? your work that they've maybe Wikipedia come on to you because of your work has um, possibly all your, you know, your work has come to light in the media um, oh, funny. and maybe it alerts Wikipedia. I don't know. Oh, but, um, there you go. It's great. I would have someone update it because I think there's so much on there um, that should be like your philanthropy, which is incredible. Right. Um, yeah. We, yeah we need to, I'll, I'll get my, my yes. office on it. <laughs> So just for our, our audience, our listeners, so your mother is English-Peruvian. Yes. Your father's French-Polish. Yes. You were raised between England and Botswana. Yes. You studied at the University of Brighton in the UK. Yes. What's your... Do you have an official title? That you, I know you don't... You're Alexi to me, but if you were to go somewhere... Well, the Polish side is... I mean, which is just, you know, it's like a... Passed down from generations before is... is the rather mouthy, mouthful word of it's uh, His Serene Highness Prince Alexei Lubomirsky. <laughs> but um, oh my god, that's fantastic! That's but obviously, fantastic. it doesn't doesn't. Uh, it, I never used it until I wrote my first book for my kids, and it was called. It was like a fatherly advice book, and this is back in two thousand fourteen, I think. And because I live in, in America, and the the publishers were saying, oh, you should you know you should use. Because it was, I think I, the first title I gave it was Notes for a Young Prince. It was like, it's basically teaching kids how to be a good people. And the publishers said, listen, you've got to give it a hook. And listen, you're a prince. So why not say, call it Princely Advice for a Happy Life. And then we can put your title on the book and it'll be a good hook. And they were right. It was a great hook. All the, uh, we, we translated into six languages. All the money went to Concern Worldwide. And uh, it, was, it was kind of funny because I'd always donated to Concern. And I just, they, they just knew me as a donor. <laughs> And then when, when the book came out, I kind of wrote to them and said, listen, would you mind if I attached your charity to, to my book? And they said, yes, whoever you are, yes, that's fine. And after about six months, when all the press came out about the book and the translations, and they, they called me up and was like, who are you? <laughs> what, what, what is this? What's happening here? So I went in to see them. And, um, but, uh, but yeah, that's really the only time I used it. But then unfortunately, I thought that I could get away with using it once. But then, of course, you know, as with everything, it sticks to you. Like, just like, you know, your your most famous photo, if you're a photographer, will always stick to you, whether it's good or bad. And uh... Yeah, but that was that was good. Can you explain to our audience the concern worldwide? Um, I know you're an ambassador, but what actually is the charity, the organisation? So it's an Irish-based charity. They basically, they work in 20 of the poorest countries in the world, uh, eradicating poverty. So they bring in basic needs and medication, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, they are also implementing lots of emergency programmes. So Whatever you see on the news, whether it's an earthquake, a famine, refugee crisis, Ebola, uh, flooding, et cetera, et cetera, they are there with boots on the ground. So I've always described it as, you know, people see things on the news and they want people want to give to charity. You know, we all have that sort of that, that gene inside us that wants to help others. 
and we you wake up and you go i really want to get to charity but then as soon as you go who should i give it to the list is so endless and you think well should i give it to a cancer charity or a, a famine charity whatever it is and then you end up not giving to anything and so I, I say to people if you give to concern you know that you're checking off boxes like famine refugee flooding ebola so many things that you can feel it's like a sort of one-stop shop um so they're amazing charity and uh, i went to see their work in kenya and it's really it's just amazing and also the people who are work there's a guy who i travel with called kieran and i remember on the first day in kenya when we went to this, this, this uh, the slum in in in, in, uh, in Nairobi, and you know I was really nervous because I didn't want to sort of I wanted to be super sensitive about how I acted, how I spoke, how I spoke to people. I, you know, I didn't, you don't want to go in there going I'm the the, the person who's going to come in and change things because obviously I'm not. And but I watched this guy Kieran, and he goes in there with such openness and such an easy smile, and just there's no there's no sort of air of I'm here to help you. It's like, how can, I want to get to know you. Tell me everything about you so that I can give you whatever tool you need to help yourself. But it's such a sort of understanding and open relationship. And I learned so much from just, even the first day I learned, I learned masses about what they did. Anyway, so it's amazing. They're a really cool charity. How did you know about them to begin with though? Did someone introduce you to them or know about them? Or were you just looking to donate generally? Yeah, it was funny because I had this thing in my head, rather, I don't know where it came from, but from the age of about 14, maybe I heard it in like, I don't know, Bible study, or scripture at school or something like that. And it was about that you should give tenth, a, tenth, a tenth of your um, earnings to charity or a tenth of your profits to charity. And I thought that would always be such a cool thing to be able to do. But of course, you know, when you're working in pubs and, and Texas Home Store and wherever else I worked, garden garden center, you know, you don't really sort of make that much to, you don't really have enough extra. So I remember when I got my first paycheck as a photographer, it was a big paycheck and I paid rent, bought food, done all the things I needed to do and I had money left over. And I thought, right, today I'm gonna finally sort of check this off my list. And so I literally went out that day to look for a charity to give to. And on the first corner of the street in, in West London, there was a guy shaking a tin at me and it was Concern Worldwide. And wow. so he spoke to me about it and I thought, okay, this is great. So I set up a monthly donation and that was it. Wow. That's a fantastic story. Well, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, a very, it's a very simple story. <laughs> yeah, but you followed through with it. Do you know what I mean? You, it's this, so many people, myself included, have been guilty of seeing an advert and wanted to do something and, and haven't. And I'm just actually stuck on the fact you worked in a in a garden center and i just think Christ, you've, come a long, you've come a long way well you know it's, it's funny i was talking about this with, with my sons the other day because they were saying how did you know you wanted to be a photographer and and i said to them it's like you know if you find this is what my mum taught me she said if you if you're lucky enough to have your hobby as a job you will never work a day in your life yes that's a great sentence and i remember i always used to hear that and but, you know, when you're at school and you were doing weekend jobs, and I remember, I remember weekends sort of moving patio slabs of concrete in Texas home, it was a garden center. And, and then my, my least favorite job was delivering fridges and washing machines for, I don't even remember what it's called in England. What, those, uh, what are the home stores called? Anyway, whatever oh, it was. Uh, B&Q or something like something. that. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, you have to get up at 3.30 in the morning to go and pack the truck and get out on the road to deliver everywhere in the county. And I just hated it. <laughs> I was just, you know, typical sort of sort of grumpy teenager. And I just remember every morning, as soon as the alarm clock went off, I would pray for some death 
deathly disease to sort of keep me in bed. Um, but it made me it made me realize that the first day that I got assisting, the first day I was ever on set as a photographer uh, as an assistant, was was the, the from then on I never didn't want to go into work. It was like I knew that I was in that was my place. That's where I wanted to be. And so it really, it really makes you appreciate your job because. You know, I, I think a lot of my assistants that I, or not just assistants, but younger people I talk to in the industry, there's, you know, there's not really that sort of the, the same, I'm not saying it's wrong or it's just different. There's not the same work mod, model that we went through where it was like you assist somebody for years and then you work your way up. And nowadays it's much more, it's like you get a big following on Instagram and then you suddenly landed a big campaign. Yes. Yeah. Reverse, isn't it? Yeah, so it's not really, I don't, sometimes, somehow there's not the foundation there, but there's also not the foundation of appreciation of what you've got. But yes, so I, I, I've loved every day of work ever since. Is it what, is, did you study photography at Brighton? I did, I studied photography at Brighton and it was, uh, it was, it was interesting. I don't think, I wouldn't say it sort of prepared me for what I was going to do. It was very conceptual based at that time. I don't know if it's changed now. And they would sort of give us projects like, you know, you have six weeks to take five pictures that say the word, whatever it was, like sunset or icon, or they give you a feeling word. And of course, I, you know, some, let's say the word was sunset. A lot of the kids, a lot of the students would go off to the old people's homes and take pictures, like beautiful black and white pictures of the old people's hands because they were in the sunset of their life. And I would say, right, sunset. So I'm going to go and find the best looking girl and guy in class <laughs> and have them running down the boardwalk in, in Brighton um, as if and they're going to be handcuffed and he's going to be wearing my dad's suit and she's going to be wearing high heels and a short skirt and they're going to be pretending to be running away from something that you can't see. And so I just made up these sort of movie stills. And the teacher at the end of the, my, my course gave me the worst mark possible. She said, I don't think you quite understood what we were doing here, but you'll be a great fashion photographer. And I was like, wow. I was like, fashion photographer? Huh, I never thought of that. So um, that was it. Wow, that's exactly what I was thinking when you described that. It's like, that's very, um, so different to the rest of your classmates, the, the tangent they were going off on. Yeah, it was, it was, it was definitely a sort of, I didn't, I didn't really under, know what fashion photography was. And then I started looking and then uh, it kind of, kind of fit into what I was doing, the narrative aspect of it. Yes, when I, I went to St. Martin's Art School and I wanted to be, I thought I wanted to be the next, next Annie Leibovitz. Oh, really? Yeah, and then I, did a, then I did a year out, landed a job at W, and the first experience I had was with, actually, Mario Testino in, oh. uh, where do we go, to Brazil, and it was, I was assisting Alex White, and Kate Moss was the model, and <laughs> I saw, and I think that's how I know Thomas, is it Thomas, Thomas Whiteside? Yes, or Adam Whiteside. Oh, um, Adam, Adam Whitehead, Adam Whitehead. I think Whitehead and, the, I think Adam and Thomas, I think, were the two that was assisting him at the exactly. time. Yeah, Thomas Nutzel and Adam Whitehead, yeah. That's it, and when I saw... <laughs> how hard they worked <laughs> and the stress i was like yeah i'm not sure about this and the technicalities because it's it's a hard i think it's a very hard career your career it's a lot it's a lot kind of a you've got to know what you're doing technically yes i mean but i think listen we assistants always felt sorry for you stylist assistants because you you know mario would always have like three or four assistants working for him running around but there was always the stylist always had one assistant she had to pack all of those bags figure out where all of those outfits had to go to trying to figure out why those shoes got stopped in customs and how she was going to get them <laughs> and um but yeah the, the the photography side of the thing was was definitely um technical i unfortunately didn't learn any technical stuff because we all had sort of jobs and adam when i arrived or when during my time there adam was the first assistant 
and he did all the technical stuff. So he ordered all the lights, he set up all the lights, da 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 da. And then me and the second, me and the third assistant basically just did with the dog's bodies who just did whatever he told us to do. And we kind of sort of got assigned jobs. And one of the jobs that I did most was considered when I arrived the most boring job, which was to hold the flash above <laughs> and the reason they thought it was boring is because you couldn't smoke cigarettes at the same time. You couldn't joke around behind one of the polyboards while you're, you know, loading cameras. And but after about three months, I was like, this is the best job ever because you're literally standing on Mario's shoulder and you're watching the mistakes he makes, how he fixes the mistakes, how he interacts with the model or the subject, how he makes uh, a celebrity who's just broken up with their boyfriend feel sexy how you make some, someone who's old and grumpy laugh. And it was just incredible in terms of people skills. So that was kind of what I walked away from that whole assisting thing was much more about people skills and how to deal with clients and how to, how to get the best out of your subject. Which actually set you up really for, it was the best job to, for you to have considering your career now and what you're doing. And you work with such high caliber people from Beyonce to Gwyneth Paltrow to Natalie Portman. And, 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 and I mean, who... Is, who haven't you? Who would you like to? Who's on the list that hasn't been on the list? Because I think there's probably not many. You know, it's it's really it's a funny question because I get asked that all the time, and there's no answer for it because it's kind of it's always the person you haven't shot that you kind of. I even you know I'd say that take that back. It's I'm interested in everybody for different reasons. So I mean, I could say you know. I'd like to do a sitting with the Queen of England, or I'd like to do a sitting with the Dalai Lama or Barack Obama or something like that. But it, the list is endless, you know. Yes, yes. That actually brings me very nicely on to talking about royalty. My goodness. <laughs> what a year <laughs> you had when you got to photograph Prince Harry and Meghan. That just, that must have been such a curveball you didn't see coming your way. Uh, that was, that was. Uh, I think, I'm not sure if I told you the story before. That was, uh, no. it was in November 2017. And I was uh, in the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxfordshire because my mum was having a brain tumour taken out. Oh, and it was, and it, was the, it was a 10 hour operation. And the doctor basically said to us, it's 50-50 how it's gonna go because it's in a really horrible place. So are we gonna call you after 10 hours and let you know if it's a success or not? So me and my brother and sister were walking around the hospital and we were freaking out and praying, coffees and pret-a-manger sandwiches. And, and um, but in, on the TVs in the background, the whole day is the, is the news on, on cycle. And it was basically saying that Harry and Meghan got engaged. And so at the end of 10 hours, the doctor still hadn't called. So we started panicking. And then after 11 hours, still no call. And then all of a sudden the phone rings. And so I scrambled the phone to my ear and I say, who is this? And they say, um, oh, this is Kensington Palace calling. We'd like to talk to Alexi. And I sort of looked at my brother and sister in with this kind of like ashen face. And they thought the worst. <laughs> and I was like, and I was like, who is this again? And they said, Kensington Palace. And I said, and then I, I suddenly remember the news articles. So then I thought it was Adam or Sicko. <laughs> so I was about to say, you're fucking kidding me. It's my mum's my, my operation today. But I sort of held it together and um, said, one more time, who is it? And then I, I said, I'm going to call them back the next day. And then two days later, I went to visit them. My mum's operation was a success, thank God. Thank God. And, thank God. And, um, <laughs> as soon as we went up to it, actually 10 minutes after that phone call, we went up to see my mum who just came out of this like 10 hour, you know, her face was all, you know, she was completely under the drug still. And the first thing my brother says to her was like, guess who just called Alexi? <laughs> and she, she just looked at us and was like, yeah, right, whatever. And then fell back asleep. But yeah, two days later we were with the couple and 
and it was amazing that they basically said to me, you know, if you got this job, how would you, how would you photograph us? And I'd brought some references along and, you know, because it's a very interesting thing doing a sort of royal photo or portrait because there's all these sort of parameters you have to work within. Obviously you can't have them kissing. You can't have them throwing each other up in the air. And there has to be a sort of element of elegance and sort of, uh, how do you want to say, subduedness, but okay. still, yes, exactly. And some romance involved. You have to see the ring, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But as I was talking about this with them, there was four of us in the room and every time one of them spoke to, or every time one of them spoke, the other one would look at the, the, the other person and there would be this twinkle and this sparkle between them. And they would sort of almost blush at each other. And it was so gorgeous. And it was, and I just said to them, listen, listen, you know what? Forget everything I'm saying. Look at how you guys are now. You're obviously so in love and it's so adorable to watch. Let me just follow you around for the day with a camera and you just be you. And, and that's how the day went. I mean, obviously the first shot was kind of, as it always is on any set, is kind of everybody getting used to each other and a little bit stiff. But then they gradually sort of warmed up. And I think that when I'm on set, it's obvious how much I'm enjoying my job. I, I tend to sort of squeal a lot. Yes, I've seen it. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think that there's that one shot of them sort of snuggling with the black and white photo where they're kind of snuggling and they're not looking at the camera. And that was at the end of the day. And I had this this picture reference in my head because, as you know, on set, everything's a reference. And there was this picture of Audrey Hepburn being wrapped up in a big over, overcoat by her husband, Mel Ferrer. And I, so I had this in my head and I said, listen, why don't you just grab her in your big overcoat and just tuck her in? And so they were both looking at me and they were both looking gorgeous and the sun was setting in this, fist, in this misty November uh, low light. And I was like, yes, 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 this is great, great, great. And then I said, can you turn around towards him? And then as she turned around, everybody on set, you could feel the hairs going up. And he was just like, oh my God, yes, 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 amazing, amazing, amazing. And then because I was <laughs> hyperventilating at this point, I think it made them laugh. And then she looked up at him, her hand somehow came out of the jacket and the ring popped out. And I was just squealing like a pig by that point. <laughs> and, and then there was this, this magical moment between them. And it was like, are they gonna kiss, are they not? And I was click, 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 click. And then they suddenly giggled to each other and then I got the picture and that was it. And um, yeah, but that's, I mean, I, even just now I get tingles talking about it. I've it's... just got goosebumps everywhere. That is just so magical. What a part of history you were. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Well, that's what you, thank God you don't think about when you're there because it's kind of, if you put that pressure on you, it's um, like that when we did the engagement pictures, nobody knew I was gonna take them. So there was no, publicity about it until afterwards, after it came out. But then for the wedding, which was six months later, whatever it was, everybody knew that I was taking the pictures for a month leading up to the wedding. So I would get daily DMs on from all my followers saying, basically saying, don't fuck it up. This is, this is his Oh my wedding. God. <laughs> yeah, thanks guys. <laughs> so, so that was, uh, that was nerve wracking, but we, luckily we got it in focus and everything was okay. <laughs> Do you think working with such high caliber people beforehand really helped you to deal with, I, I would imagine, to deal with the yeah. pressure of that, being in front of celebrities, knowing the decorum, what to say, not to say? Yeah, 100%. I think that's, that's one thing, and I always say this to people, why people should assist, is because I know that when I left university, the, the highest that I could imagine getting was to have maybe a full page in FHM magazine. <laughs> and that was for me the pinnacle that was the top of the mountain I was like if I can get a full page of anything whether it's a surf campaign or whatever and then I remember going on set for 
and bear in mind, I'd, I'd been around fashion magazines my whole childhood from, with my mum. So it wasn't like I hadn't seen this stuff. I just didn't, I just thought like only gods took those pictures. Somehow they, they were sort of sprinkled from Mount Olympus somehow. But my first day of on set ever was with Testino for a Burberry campaign. It was the one where Kate Moss was getting married to Freddie Windsor or something like that. Yes, I remember and, that. And I remember the first shot we were taking was Kate Moss and Liberty Ross. Liberty Ross, yeah. And Kate Moss was in the, in the famous Burberry bikini. And I was just holding the flash above the camera going, holy shit, this is what it's about. <laughs> and I thought, hang on a minute. I thought a photo shoot was like a photographer, a model, a bag of film, and maybe if you're being really outrageous, a light or a flash. And here you had like sort of lights everywhere, wind machines, posing tables, cast of thousands, you know. And so I was, I was because I was able to see what the top of the mountain looked like, I could then, you can then manifest it. You can then have something to aim for. So up until COVID finished, we used to we used to do this thing where every day anybody who wrote into me could come on set for a day, just to see it because I know how much just that first day with Mario gave me, and I wanted to sort of give that to other people so that at the end of the day when people come on set, I'll talk to them quickly and say so you know where are you from you know what did you enjoy about today or what did you learn and even if they can't even if they can't help just to see what goes on. And some people say, oh my God, I didn't realize there was a table just for posing on. Or I didn't realize you could put lights like that. I want to try that. Or I didn't realize that you had to, it wasn't just about taking photos. You have to actually deal with a client and you have to talk about hair and makeup. And so I think there's so much to, 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 to be said for assisting and actually being on another person's set where you don't have the responsibility to make sure everything's working. Yeah, I think people skills is, is critical. Yeah. Critical. Not just dealing with, I think, celebrities, but just kind of all the nitty gritty of dealing with, I don't know, dealing with people in the equipment room or catering. Oh, everything. I always tell my, my, I tell my assistants that you have to be a, a therapist, the host of a party, a psychotherapist. Um, and then after all that's done, then you can be a photographer. Yes. Because you have to make sure all the egos have been heard. You have to make sure everybody's getting on because happy people make happy pictures. You've got to make sure that, you know, that, that you know, when the hairdresser, is suddenly has this come on set with this idea, I want to do this amazing hairstyle. And you know that it's not right, but you have to allow him to at least work it through so that he doesn't feel like he's been shut out. And, you know, you have to allow everybody to play their part, but then at the same time, you have to pull all the reins in to make sure everybody's going in the same direction. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's an, an analytical game. It's almost quite, it's quite political, isn't it? Oh, yeah. In the with who ego stroking or just being like you saying being sensitive and respectful yeah. to other people's talents um exactly i remember being on a shoot in uh i think i was in hawaii and it really wasn't going well and um the, the hair and the makeup kind of we didn't want fake tan we decided that the night before they changed the call time on me and they'd all met before and they put fake tan on the model and it looked horrendous <laughs> and then they and they did this hair and um, I just was, I didn't even know what to say diplomatically. And I said, so I, I can't say it diplomatically, so I'm not going to. And I just went, she looks like she's been dragged through a hedge backwards. What the hell is that? <laughs> Sensitive as always. Sensitive <laughs> as always. I always believe in getting to the point. But no, that was just, <laughs> I feel like I've been ambushed. They snuck off and did something off brief. Right. Well, if, if, they, if they did that on purpose, then yeah, that's a bit it was on purpose. It was totally on purpose. It was for the Wall Street Journal, and I was given strict instructions on what to do, and right. that wasn't it. But no, I think what comes through on your when you look at your work, you can see the happiness exudes and the positivity in your images. It's that's your nature, though, Alexi. 
Well, that's the thing that I think that I, it took a while for me to sort of become comfortable with it because when you, you know, whoever you assist or whatever, you, whatever era you grow up in, when, and when you see what's in the magazines, you obviously want to do that because you think that's is what works or, or those are people you look up to. So, you know, when I was at university, I loved David LaChapelle because for me, it was like, oh my God, I didn't realize you can go crazy. You can, you can actually do anything you want. You can create these incredible scenes. And then when I left, when I was working for Mario, obviously Mario was a big influence, but at the time there was like the David, young David Sims, there was young Mario Sorrenti, and there's all these people and it was very sort of, it was at the end of grunge and, you know, so it was, it was kind of like this sort of painful fashion, I would call it. So like, you know, where it's like, there's the kind of this angst about fashion. And, and then I realized that, so for when I, when I left to become a photographer, of course, I was trying to put into my into my young portfolio everything that I'd seen out there or everything that was out there and try to make it really cool and really edgy and make the light really edgy. And it was fine. It got me jobs. But it wasn't until that I realized that, you know what, that's not really the woman that I, 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 I gravitate towards. And I suddenly, you know, if you look at my wife, my wife is, you know, I think she's gorgeous. But apart from that, she's 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 full of life you know she's passionate about everything and she smiles easily she laughs easily and it's not the sort of like uh too cool for school thing it's just like just enjoy life for fuck's sake We're just, just, just be happy and so that's what and then once i embraced that i think i found my own my own speed and my own frequency and then you know you you uh you work at 100 percent then i think that comes from experience but from getting older as well you get more yeah. confident as you get older yeah uh, and put in different experiences and yeah and, and it's just yeah it comes it all comes with experiences doesn't it i mean one thing i wanted to touch on where, where do you see yourself in 10 years time do you do you feel that you would like slightly veer off what you're doing now would you want to get into films are you happy with what you're doing would you retire no i think i think that i i, I know that i love to create I, I know that whatever it is i love to create and i think that over the last sort of eight years I've, uh, I've taken some handcuffs off, meaning, meaning that I used to, if something inspired me, whether it was music or a movie or the light, you know, bouncing off my wife's hair in a restaurant or something like that, I would automatically think, right, how can I, how can I use, turn that inspiration into a photograph? Because I'm a photographer. And then once I realized that you don't have to sort of, you, you, should, you should really let that inspiration manifest into whatever medium suits it best. And that's when I started writing poetry and I started writing prose and started doing montage and all that sort of stuff. And then it just, when you take those handcuffs off and you take those boundaries away, it just blasts open the door. And so, like, I don't know if you know, I, today actually is my, is the official release of my poetry book, um, Talk To Me Always. Yes, I wanted to break, talk about that because you had an event last night, didn't you, with Nikki Boardman? Yes, I did. Yes, at the Strand in New York. And so, you know, I think that, I want to, in 10 years time, I just want to be creative. I mean, and if that means I'm a photographer, great. If that means I'm writing poetry, great. If I'm doing something else. But I think that it's not just about doing something creative. I think that, I think that, I think everybody wants to make a difference. Everybody wants to feel like you're doing something good. You know, I, I believe that we all think of ourselves as good people and kind people. And I think that, as you said, you know, a lot of us want to, you know, for example, give to charity, but we might never end up doing it. And I just don't, and I don't know if we'll touch upon this later, but uh, when my stepfather passed away uh, 11, uh, nine years ago, he was suddenly given three weeks to live. 
Uh, oh God, I'm sorry. No, it was, it was a blessing. I mean, uh, he taught me that it was a blessing because he wasn't hit by a bus, you know, and gone straight away. We had three weeks to tell each other everything we wanted to tell each other. And we talked about life and love and death and purpose and et cetera, et cetera. And at the end of it, you know, we were discussing like, what is, what is life about? What, what the fuck are we doing here? And he said, you, you know, you, we, we came to the conclusion, do you arrive on this planet or in this life with nothing? Right? You, you're naked and you have nothing as a soul or a spirit. And then when you leave, you can't take your car, you can't take your jewels or your shoes or anything with you. You leave as a spirit again or as a soul. So how do you make sure that your soul when you leave is richer than it was when you arrived? And the way to do that is to evolve yourself spiritually and become spiritually richer. And the way to do that is through the cliche, which is just love, whether it's love to do with chivalry, love to do with charity, love to do with helping people. And so he taught me that, listen, you've been so blessed by simply having food on the table and having a legs and arms that work and et cetera, et cetera. You have to use your blessings to help others. And so everything. That's powerful. Yeah. I mean, and, and, but, and, but it's so obvious. And I, you know, I never really thought about that before because we, we're all wrapped up in, through no fault of our own, we're all wrapped up in our own bubble. You know, we've got to make a living, we've got to do this. What does this person think about us? What, is, what, are the, what am I going to do tomorrow? And so after that, after he passed away, my life became so easy in the sense that every decision that I made was based on how am I going to feel about this on my deathbed? And so I started writing poetry. I started, I wrote that book of fatherly advice for my kids. That's crap that I would never have done before because I'd be too worried about like, what, you know, what the hell are you doing? You're a fashion photographer. You, you don't have the right to do fatherly advice or write poetry. But on my, de- on my deathbed, I'm going to be like, thank God I did that. Thank, all I'm trying to do is like, it's not a vanity project. It's just about spreading a little bit of light and love and compassion and raising money for charity. And, you know, I, I won't care about that stuff when I'm older. So in, re- in the long way of answering the question about what I want to do in 10 years is just to make sure that I'm, make sure that I'm doing enough, whatever that means. I, I would get to my final days and think, shit, I could have done more. And I think I have a trauma from my childhood where every report card I had without fail said could try harder oh my god that was mine <laughs> and i think they drummed it into me so much that if if i do anything nowadays and somebody says yeah you could have tried a bit harder on that i want to just like slip my wrist <laughs> so, <laughs> so i think that in terms of life i, I don't want to get that report card at the end <laughs> no i don't think like, anyone can accuse you of that at all it's um <laughs> what i love about kind of when i was doing a deep dive on everything you've been doing up until now is Honestly, the, philanth- the philanthropy, the giving back, and like all proceeds from your books go to charity. That you're an ambassador for Concern Worldwide, your princely advice. I mean, what a great role model you are to your children growing up. I, yeah, we can only hope. I mean, you know, I think that's. I think no matter what you do as a parent, the kids, <laughs> the kids will end up going to therapy and blaming you for something. So. No, but I'm sure, like later on, it, it'll, it's ingrained. It's got to be because of what you've instilled in them. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. And how did your Creators for Change come about? I think that's fantastic. What if you can just explain to our audience what that is? I think that's so needed. Yeah, that was that was. Um, I mean, the seed of it was born. I think it was around two thousand eight or nine, and I was asked by I think it was Naomi Campbell to shoot her for a Black Glamour campaign. And Black Glamour, as you know, is a big fur company, and you know they've had many legends uh, being modelling in the campaigns. And my, my agent at the time said, listen, it's a lot of money. Fantastic. Congratulations. And for the first time, I thought, shit, 
I'm gonna get paid because I never felt comfortable shooting fur. I never said anything about it. I never addressed this weird feeling that I had, but I never felt comfortable shooting fur. And people would come up to me on set with these fur pieces and go, oh, feel this, isn't it delicious? And I would feel it and go, yeah, it's kind of soft, but it's kind of weird. <laughs> and so I, I said to my agent at the time, I said, listen, I don't think I can do this because it's, it's all fur and I'm getting paid for it. And they said, what are you talking about? You get, you know, you, you shoot editorials, everybody shoots fur. You, you can't not shoot fur because you're getting paid for it when you're going to shoot it in editorials anyway. But these two words kept popping into my head, which was very unexpected, which was blood money. And I remember thinking to myself, shit, you know, what am I going to do? And I, and I had this sort of, I was standing in the middle of Washington Square Park, whatever it was, nine o'clock in the morning, freezing my ass off. It was like December or sometime. And I thought, shit, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And I suddenly said to my agent, I'm really sorry I can't do it. I, I'm going to have to, I'm, I know you're probably right. And I'm probably going to phone you right back to say, I'm, you know, get me the job. But I, I have to say no. And I put the phone down thinking I was going to panic. And because I needed that money. And it was very early in my career. But when I put the phone down, I had this incredible elation, this, this feeling of elation come over me, this, like this weight had been lifted off my shoulders because I'd made a very difficult decision, but for a good purpose, for a good reason. And I was like, wow, that's, that's amazing. I didn't expect to feel that. And so I started to sort of whisper in people's ears on, on shoot saying, do you mind if we don't show, shoot that piece of fur? And of course, some people said, well, that's ridiculous because you know it, it's part of the story. So you'd win some, you lose some. But then when I um, got a bit older, I would start putting it in my contract. And because I realized I did have the power and I, I realized that I got to a stage of my career, thank God, very luckily, where people wanted me to shoot their campaign or to shoot their story. And I was able to say, I would love to shoot a story, but would it be okay if we didn't shoot fur? And a lot of the times people would say, you know what, we've talked to the magazine or we've talked to the client and they're totally fine taking the fur pieces out because there were only a few anyway. Then when the Harry and Meghan wedding happened, uh, my visibility got shot through the roof. Bearing, you know, I always remembered my, my stepfather's words, like using your blessings to sort of bless others. So I thought, how can I use this visibility, not just to sort of amass and gain and whatever, but to actually do something good with it. So I'm, we started this initiative called Creators for Change. And I, it's a basic, the idea is that we're all so blessed to be working in this industry and to be able to create and to every day create and inspire people around the world. But with this amazing power to inspire comes a lot of responsibility. And one example is cigarettes. You know, we don't put cigarettes in fashion photography anymore because you know that if you put Kate Moss or whoever it is standing on top of a mountaintop in a beautiful fur coat wearing, uh, smoking a cigarette, young women are going to look at that and go, oh my God, I want to be that person, which means I want that fur coat, I want the cigarette, I want the makeup and the hair and et cetera. And that's why we took cigarettes out. The first project for Creators for Change was to ask people in the industry, whether it's stylists, magazine editors, photographers, models, to sign a pledge saying that they will no longer use fur, feathers, or exotic skins in their, in their creative output anymore. And it was fascinating because a lot of people said, oh my God, absolutely, of course. I don't know why I didn't think about this before. Uh, other people said, oof, what we, you know, I've got to worry about my, you know, I, I don't want to rock the boat because I've got these clients. And it was very interesting to see why the reasons that people would give for not signing it. But then you have to find it, going back to the psychology of, 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 yes, of yes. people, you have to find the key to, to what's going to be the key to make them sign this pledge. So some people, some photographers, I would say to them, listen, you are the top, you're one of the top photographers right now. And in 20 years time, you might not be the top dog anymore. 
And you, wouldn't it be shitty to look back in 20 years time thinking, shit, I wish I'd used my power to make a change then because I don't have the power to do it now. And so I would sort of try and make them think 20 years in advance. And they would say, you know what, you're right. I'm going to do it. I sign. So then they would sign. Then there was something like Diane von Furstenberg, which is a sort of funny one where I've been trying to contact her for a while. And then suddenly her assistant calls me up and says, listen, she can give you five minutes in 10 minutes. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I grabbed my bike, raced around to her studio, uh, got pushed into her office and we spoke about, it. I said, listen, I would, I would love for you to sign this pledge. And she started telling me the story about, you know, how her mother was in a concentration camp. And the first thing she did when she uh, got out was to buy a fur coat because she never wanted to feel the cold like she'd felt in the concentration camp. And I said, I said, my God, that's a complete, that's such a valid story for, for, the, for the reason for fur. And she was saying, and also, you know, fake fur, is, 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 it, is it better for the planet and et cetera, et cetera. And then she said, right, you've got one more minute. <laughs> so I was like, how do, I, how do I change this woman's mind? So I said, I said right, Diane, you are a, you're an icon and you, you are a genius. But you've been in this industry for so long and you've succeeded. And you've succeeded because you trust your heart. Because every day you make designs or, or, or creative choices that you choose by listening to your heart. Nobody can tell you that this color with this fabric with this pattern will be a success, but you felt it in your heart. So bearing that in mind, now that you know exactly how fur, feathers and exotic skins are made, what does your heart tell you? And she looked at me and was going, and she said, yeah, it's very beautiful, I signed. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, I was like, seriously? <laughs> I was like, give me a pen quickly. Oh my God, you've got her at the heartstrings. Yeah, so everybody has a key. Anyway, so that's that's what it is. And so Creators for Change is basically just, I want to just try and, while I have any influence in this industry, I'm going to try and use it to sort of leave the industry in a better position than it was when I arrived in it. Well, God, you're doing amazing. That's so fantastic. Alexi, I've got goosebumps. I could just, I just, we were talking to someone earlier before about sustainability and being responsible. And it's just such an education, these podcasts. Mm, yeah. Thank you so much. Thank no. you so much thank for doing that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. But thank you so much. And I honestly, I wish you all the best. And I think this is what you're doing is just remarkable. Everyone needs to kind of jump on what you're doing and support creators for change because it's possible it's absolutely possible to do it. yeah and we do all have the power i mean and, but, and it's, it is it is all the reason we don't sort of choose to make changes because of fear and it's, it's completely understandable listen we've all got to pay rent we've got families to pay for and support but as i said touching on the diana story is creatives are the ones who can understand this the most is that when you make creative choices out of fear they never work when you make creative choices by, because you, you just feel something, you know that it's right, even though everybody might say it's wrong, but you just know in your heart that it's right. Those are the, those, that's when the magic happens. And so I tell creative people, just trust that, trust that gut you have, trust that heart you have. You, you know that the reason you don't want to watch those videos of animals being skinned or electrocuted is because it's going to uh, cement everything you've always known about that. But we've all, we've all turned our, our eyes away because it's, um, blissful ignorance so so it's uh, we just have to listen to our hearts yeah definitely god well thank you so much thank you thank you for listening to our podcasts it always amazes me how much kindness and goodness a human can do if they really want to if they really care thank you so much alexi for sharing your time with us 
Our next guest coming up is such a big champion of sustainability in a really educational way. He's gone from serving as GAP's Senior Manager of Social Responsibility. He's worked on an education programme with Shirovsky, who's Kering's first Director of Corporate Sustainability. He was appointed the Dean of Fashion at Parsons in 2016. He's also created scholarships there, as well as Central St. Martins in London. Please tune into our next podcast with Birat Chekmak to learn of two new initiatives he started this year that really bring the fashion industry, sustainability and design students even more together. Please tune in for this podcast with Barack. Keep well and stay safe. All the best. <laughs>